Um, you know, th- this, is, this is the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to take the harder side of our encounters on this planet with each other and to turn that rock to say, let's see where the beauty and wonder of the gospel is absolutely evident and complete in this harder side of life. But the truth is that that really is also the entirety of the revelation of the word of God, isn't it? The entirety of the gospel. And it is also in part the beauty of what for so many thousands of years now has been the purpose of the people of God regularly gathering together to be able to engage in that remembrance of looking at the harsh realities of planet Earth and our lives, encountering circumstances, relationships, and resource challenges that demand for us to doubt, and then to gather back up and say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus together. I just want to tell you, it's so great to be with you here. Like really, like I was standing there again in the, in the 9 and then now in the eleven seventeen, and being in a room where we are gathered to come together, to declare together what we know is true of God and to hear it together and speak it together and sing it together and, and, and drive our eyes back to Jesus is such a profound supernatural thing that God calls us into. No wonder the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but come together to stir each other up, to be stirred up by each other toward love and good deeds. And so it is just good to be here together. The church has faced over thousands of years multiple obstacles that has driven it for seasons to have to reorient the gathering space. Sometimes dictators that have demanded that the church dies and they've had to meet in secret little rooms in little houses. Sometimes through circumstances of life or or geography. Sometimes through viruses rolling through the planet, right? But then when we do gather back up at the end of it, we should pay attention to the beauty of that. We should just go, well, welcome back. How good is it to be together? To be together, gathered here and gathered in our different spaces to encounter God through each other. Because we are, after all, the body of Christ. That's right. So, body of Christ, thanks for being here because I get to experience him through you as you do him through me. And what a joy it is to do that. I also just want to say um, that it is super fun, as always, uh, to just have such a beautiful diversity of people and humans and personalities and stuff in this place, and kids in particular, uh, for those of you that are here with us, like, hi! Like, all the kids, 10 and under, or I don't care, you can be 15 or 72 if you think you're a kid. Like, stand up on your chair for a second, would you kids? Stand up on your chair for a second. Like, if you're a kid, stand up on your chair. Like, I want to see you. Like, I just really want, I know, I know you're like, what? Just do it for one second for me, because I just want to see you. Hi. Hi. Like, hi. Like, it's so good to see you guys. Like, you don't have to do anything. I just want to say hi. What's up? Thanks for being here. Hi. It's so great to have you here. Like, it's just good. Isn't it just good to be together? And, and, and how good is it that as we come together in this place, 
that what we get to do together is to explore through the uh, words that God gave people for these songs and through the word of God that God gave us to explore where he shows us the beauty of eternity in his kingdom in the midst of the collision of the brutality of ours, right? And so that's really what we get to do in Philippians. Now remember, as we enter these spaces like Philippians, we are engaging in something that is profoundly present and human and real on an everyday basis, as well as it being profoundly eternal and massive and divine. What do I mean by that? When we read the letter of Philippians, it was an actual letter written to an actual group of people with actual real questions. Are you with me? It was just a letter. Like some people came from Philippi, to find Paul, and they said to Paul, dude, some stuff's happening in Philippi that's super confusing. We're not sure what to do or how to handle it. What do you think? And he wrote a letter to send back to answer their questions and to encourage them and to, to, to move and shape and transform, to preach the word of God to them, but not that we had the word of God yet in a New Testament format. You with me so far? And yet, God takes this reality of this ordinary human-to-human response, a letter, and he eventuates it into the Word of God and determines it to be the eternal, forever, unchanging, never-to-fade-away Word of God for all of eternity. A dumb, stupid human letter was not a dumb, stupid human letter. It was the revelatory Word of God in a human letter. Like, I'm sorry, that fascinates me. How does a God bring the revelation of eternity to us in an ordinary human form? I just find that absolutely delightful. And so we get to enter this letter remembering that we are encountering the divine word of God, but we also get to experience the letter as a guy named Paul writing to a bunch of people in Philippi that now also gets to be a guy named Paul writing to a bunch of people in Winter Garden and the general Orlando area because it became the Word of God. And that was God's decision. And so when we enter this, we get to look at this from this space of saying, what if I had asked these questions of Paul? I've wondered about that sometimes. Like, I wonder what it would have been like to have like Paul on the planet right now. Like maybe he's living in Europe somewhere or, I don't know, East Africa or North America or somewhere in Brazil. I don't know where he's living. He's living somewhere, not here. And we have a question. Things are going on, you know, like we got stuff going on. And we're like, dude, let's get with Paul and ask him. And maybe we send an email or maybe we buy some plane tickets and five or six of us get on a plane and we fly out to where Paul is. And we're like, do you have some time for like some coffee? He's like, sure. And then we land. And if you got to sit at the table with Paul, the apostle, Uh, with all of his collective experience and being discipled the way he was by Jesus and by the disciples to sit with him and say, okay, Paul, here's what's going on. What do you think? What should we do? That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? And in many ways, because Paul's regular letters were actually inspired by the Spirit of God to become the revelatory Word of God, we do get to engage with Paul in that way because the questions that Paul was answering turns out to be questions that most of us are regularly asking. Like the Philippians, they were sending word to Paul because here was the deal. Okay, remember, here was the deal. We are the church in Philippi. 
And we are beginning to learn and understand deeply the way of God. And the way of God is apparently opposing the way of our current cultural context. So we live in a current cultural context that's value system is not the same value system as the way of God. And so when we bring our value system to the table, our culture sees us as enemies, not as friends. Why? Because in Philippi, Philippi was the place that those who were loyal to Rome on an extraordinarily high level, either in politics or in military, were sent to Philippi to retire, given free land, free taxes, and the beautiful city of Philippi on the Aegean Sea to retire and enjoy. So the church is born into a culture that is absolutely loyal to the way of Rome. And this particular new way, the way of Jesus, doesn't just oppose the culture from a value system. It actually has a different God than the culture does. The culture has a God, and that is the emperor, the leader, Caesar himself. And so if you are going to bring another God to the table, that God is subordinate to Caesar. But what if you bring a God to the table that is the creator and sustainer of all things, including Caesar? that doesn't go well. And so Philippi, the church there is sending note to say, Paul, out of curiosity, when we are in a cultural context that every time we bring the value system of God to the table, it is opposed. We are persecuted relationally or persecuted physically. We are seen as enemies. Should we keep fighting? Should we go a little more silent? Should we bend? What should we do? And by the way, why is it so hard? Does that sound familiar in any way? Like, are we not asking similar questions? We have lived in a cultural context with the luxury of being in a space where the culture's value system had been birthed out of at least a general value system from what is God's value system. And so we had the luxury of being a people where our value system, when it was brought to the table, didn't feel like an opposition to the culture's value system. That has not absolutely changed yet, but it is changing. And this has happened, by the way, FYI, to every culture before us and will happen to everyone after us. So when we say, how come our culture's going crazy? We've lost our way. I'm like, I'm Persia, Greece, Rome, uh, Germany, uh, Italy, Spain, France, America, South America. You Pick one. Pick one. They ran a couple of hundred years and went psycho. So, welcome. The question becomes, when that begins to happen and the world begins to oppose us in terms of our value system and the things we bring to the table are misunderstood or directly opposed and we begin to experience hardship because of it, what do we do? That's the question that they were asking. Would you like an answer to that question? So would I. Turns out the book of Philippians is in many ways an answer to that question, right? And then beyond the immediate circumstances in which any one of these contexts found themselves when they sent word to Paul, all very different contexts, there were also some larger human questions that are formed out of these contexts. So our unique context is specific to us 
Corinth was unique to Philippi, which was unique to Thessalonica, which was unique to Rome, which was et cetera, et cetera. But out of each of those contexts, bigger human questions would arise that would be similar. Here's one, for example. Paul, we're wondering that as we engage in these hard spaces and we encounter opposition and that opposition creates suffering and that suffering creates what seems to be a stifling of the movement or the power or the expansion of God's kingdom, how do we answer the question of God's power and our suffering and how the two collide? And how do we answer the question when we feel a bit like we are stepping into what seems to be a very effective ministry advancement of the gospel, and then we are encountered by external circumstances that thwart that, and then we can't see the gospel advanced. How do you answer what God is up to? Because we feel a little stuck. Why would Philippi be asking this question? Think about Paul's story for a second, right? Paul was on his way to Rome to go to Spain to preach the gospel in Spain, to see churches planted in Spain so that the whole region of the known world would experience the advancement of the gospel, the beauty of the redemptive work of Jesus, and thousands, perhaps millions of humans would come to know Jesus. And Paul was extremely anointed and empowered and effective in doing that because he had planted churches in most of the known world. He did it in Galatia, Lystra, the whole region of Galatia. He did it up in, 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 uh, in Asia Minor. He did it all along the Aegean Sea in all of Macedonia. Uh, there are churches everywhere because of Paul's ministry. And now he's on his way to Rome, on his way to Rome to go to Spain. And on his way there, he goes through Jerusalem. You with me so far? And Philippi knows about this. This was years ago. And they're like, Paul's on his way to Spain. Pray for Paul that God would use him mightily to bring all of Spain to Jesus. And then in Jerusalem, he gets arrested by Rome to protect him from the Jews who want to kill him. And instead of arresting him, moving him from Jerusalem, sending him off to Rome so he could go to Spain and preach the gospel, they put him under arrest for the next like gazillion years because they don't know what to do with him. They're like, oh, move him from Jerusalem to here. Have him sit there for a few years. Have him talk to the governor a little bit. Nothing seems to be moving there. It's like a strange bureaucratic governmental system. Nothing we know anything about, right? And, and then uh, it just kind of bounces and bounces and eventually ends up in Rome. He's supposed to see Caesar. And now years have gone by. Years have gone by. And he's not in Spain planting churches, preaching the gospel, changing the world. Like, wouldn't you think for one second, Paul, would you mind explaining to us just a little bit how you think this is a better plan that God has to have you stuck in prison instead of being the evangelist you were made to be? Do you see how our questions are really the same questions that people were asking back then? And Scripture answers those same questions. Now, Here's the last piece of the puzzle before we actually go read scripture. Because you're like, no, you're talking a lot and we need to get in the Bible. I, I hear you. I feel you. I do. But this is all how we begin our journey into the passage we're about to encounter. Here's why. Because this passage can be a little easy to skip over quickly because at first glance, it feels like nothing more than an update. Have you ever read these letters? And there's sections of the letters, like it's all the verses we memorize. You're like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
right? We memorize those. But then we're like, hi, greetings from Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Do you ever memorize that one? Put that on a poster? No, because it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know. That's just like, that's like the beginning of the letter. It's not like actual scripture, is it? Because it's just like there. So sometimes there's parts of letters that just seem like Paul's kind of going like, hey, update. I'll get to the inspiring put on a poster verse in just a second. But before I do, since it's a regular letter, I'm just going to update you. But here's what we need to always assume, that God didn't waste a single word in this entire thing. In fact, he was the one that said through John, if I put all the words down that I had to say, then you'd have 4,000 of these and you don't even read the first one. And so I'm going to summarize and I'm going to get this down. This is actually our cliff notes. This is the cliff notes. And so when you do cliff notes or you do blink or whatever, you read an entire book and every word matters that you choose because you need to get the essence out. So when Paul is writing an update, we should ask ourselves, what is God using this update to teach us? What is God showing us to this? Because God, when he speaks, he takes every ordinary human sentence and he layers a hundred things into it for our purpose of knowing, learning, growing, and transforming. So we're about to enter a quick update that is so much more than a quick update. You guys ready? I am. Let's do it. Uh, Philippians uh, chapter one, that's where we're going. And in Philippians chapter one, we're going to be in verse 12. So you kind of have the context now, the grand question of Philippi, man, we're encountering a culture that's super hard. What do we do? That answer is going to come through the entirety of the letter. This passage that we're about to encounter doesn't answer that question fully. It's just setting the foundation for what is to come. But what Paul is going to do is answer the big human question when what God seems to be doing isn't as effective as what we think is effective for the expansion of his kingdom, how do you answer his power encountering the planet of death? And here's what Paul's going to do. Look at this. Quick update here. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Do you see how that begins to feel like update? So what's he just done? He came into the letter greeting, and then he, he said to them, it's so great to be in partnership with you. And then he prayed a profound prayer for them. And now it's that time in the letter where you're supposed to go, I know you all are wondering how I'm doing. So before I get on with the rest of the inspirational stuff, let me just tell you, FYI, my current circumstances, I do want you to know, are proving to actually be quite effective for the advancement of the gospel. Now that's interesting that Paul would say that because, again... That was probably not, at its root, the question that came from Philippi. Hey, uh, Paul, Philippi wants to know, why are you stuck in prison wasting time? Because God has work to do. No, they were probably like, man, what's it like to be in prison? Do you feel like stuck all the time? Like, are you frustrated? Like, what do you pray? How can we pray for you? We pray for your freedom all the time. Do you think that the people are praying for Paul's freedom? I sure hope so. Because like Paul's in prison, and if he's free, what happens if he's free? then the gospel can advance. And so Paul says, I want you to know something. Man, thanks for your prayers. Keep praying them. I certainly don't love being in prison. It's not like, yay, prison. But while I'm in prison, I do want you to know something, that the gospel is advancing profoundly while I'm here. 
When you put a sentence like that, if you don't explain yourself, then it becomes a sentence that feels like pixie dust. You know what I'm saying? It's like those Christian sentences we throw around. I'm deeply suffering. I've got terrible things happening, but God is good. Now, is he good? Yes, absolutely. But we don't mean it when we say that. Kind of, sort of. We do. We hope. We want. But we're sort of like, he's good. Then, then I always want to go, okay, I believe you, but how? Tell me. Explain. Like, do you feel that or do you just like know that? So if this is just Paul saying, I'm stuck in prison. Spain is going to hell. But don't worry. I'm sure God's advancing the gospel somewhere. <laughs> That's how that feels. Unless you explain. And when the spirit of God is involved and he's teaching us, what does he do? He explains, right? So here we go. Look, man, I want you to know that the gospel's being advanced significantly while I'm here. And so he says this, so, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So what he's saying here now is he's saying there are several specific things I have come to discover as I have sat in my prison that seems to be holding me back from my ministry. I've actually discovered that in this prison, my prison isn't holding me back from my ministry. My prison is affecting the advancement of the gospel. This is my ministry, not because it's the one I picked or thought would be, but it's because God is always using my predicaments, my joys, my wonders, my sufferings for the advancement of his kingdom. And as I have explored that, here's what I've discovered. You're not going to believe this, but the entire imperial guard not only know that I'm in prison, but they know why I'm in prison. Now, who are the Imperial Guard? The Imperial Guard are the soldiers that were selected from the highest levels of Roman army. And listen, if you were in the Roman army, you were loyal to Rome. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like you fought to the death. You didn't run away. Rome was what you gave your life for. The emperor was who you honored. Caesar was your God. And among all those army people, they selected the loyalist of the loyalist of the loyalist. The ones that they're like, we could put you in the room with Caesar and there's no way you would betray him. That was the imperial guard. The guard that were in charge of guarding the powers that be, including Caesar. So they, the Imperial Guard, had access in regularity to the rooms where Caesar would enter. That's a big deal, right? To be one of those soldiers. And what Paul says here is, a world that would have been untouchable as far as the gospel is concerned in human thinking. A world that would, that's, that's not Spain that's not Asia Minor, that's not Macedonia, the world of Caesar himself, the world of those who surround Caesar, that world is now acutely aware of me, of why I'm here, and of why I've stayed here. This is the, the inferring that Paul is doing. It is not just that he's in prison because of Jesus. 
It's that his longevity in prison has kept going because he hasn't faltered in his stand for Jesus. And so if he had been in prison for seven weeks and then released, would the imperial guard wonder about Paul's story and the story of Jesus? Not one bit. But it is the fact that Paul has been in prison for years now that has affected this profound reality that the imperial guard know of this reality. And what does that spark when someone knows of someone's suffering or predicament or, or, or cost, and they know that the cost is because of a faith that they have in someone, what does that do in terms of questioning that faith? It creates authenticity, doesn't it? When you see somebody believing something with all their heart at whatever cost, it sure begs the question, they're either crazy or they're onto something, right? And since the imperial guard are part of who is engaged in guarding Paul, they are encountering Paul as a person. And so what Paul is saying here in one sentence is, the imperial guard, who I encounter regularly and encounter Caesar regularly, how many of them know that I'm here because of Jesus? All of them. This is the Bible. It's not an exaggeration, right? If I were writing the Bible, it might be an exaggeration. But I didn't write it. Paul wrote it, inspired by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is not exaggerating. The Spirit of God is saying, how many know? All. And then who else knows? And all the others. I don't even know who the others are. But I suspect in Rome, a large amount of any soldier that was part of anything had heard of Paul's story. And what Paul is saying is, they are wrestling. Because they know of me. They know of why I'm here. And they're struggling with the fact that I'm not crazy. Because <laughs> as they encounter me, Paul was not crazy. He was absolutely amazing to hang out with. You can just see that by the people that did. Same as people that encountered Jesus in that same way. Here's this crazy rabbi that's doing crazy stuff that must be off his rocker. And then you encounter him and you walk away totally transformed and going, I want him to be crazy. Because what he believes is crazy, but he's not crazy. And that's what Paul's saying. Folks, while Spain has sat and waited on me, Paul didn't say that, but that's the in infer, right? You had such a potential ministry in Spain and you're stuck in prison. Gotcha, but listen, the whole imperial guard is in this. Now, did Paul say in this, the whole imperial guard came to know Jesus? No, he doesn't even know. If, I, don't, I don't know that anybody has, because I think if somebody had at this point, he might have said that. And uh, Larry came to Jesus. It's awesome. I think his Roman name would have been not Larry, but that's the English translation into the American version of it. So just kidding. I just made that up. Um, so there isn't, doesn't seem to be an imperial guard that necessarily came to Jesus. What Paul is saying is sometimes when you are in a circumstance that seems to thwart what you thought God was going to do to glorify himself through you, God is up to something that is developing a fruit that you haven't even seen born yet, but you see the work of the gospel. And to suggest that that gospel work is less than the great gospel works we would do when we see what we equate to as big is a silly idea because that is a worldly economy, not a kingdom economy. God is doing something profound through my imprisonment, and I'm not even really doing anything. It's just my story he's using. But look at this. Paul's not done. He says, and, look at this, and most of the brothers 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I mean, I could preach for three days just on that verse because there's so much here. Paul is beginning to suggest, again, what Paul is defying is our human economy, that when I do something big through God empowering me, that's more effective than when I do something small that doesn't feel big. See, we are great at measuring the big things any one of us do, but we are terrible at measuring all the invisible things God does through many when we were just one piece of the puzzle. Those don't feel big because they're harder to measure. And what Paul is saying here is, while you and I might have thought that me not being imprisoned and going off to Spain to preach the gospel there, plant churches in all the places, see them born and write letters to them would have been the most effective way to see the expansion of the gospel. Let me tell you, not only are the imperial guard wondering about the gospel, but those who were a little afraid to preach it like I did are not afraid anymore. And what happens when 20 of those start doing the same thing I was doing alone? We don't even know what fruit that's going to birth. And so to suggest that my imprisonment is diminishing the expansion of God's kingdom is a worldly idea, not a godly idea. Look, I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Philippi, my imprisonment is the cause of great advancement in the gospel that isn't yet fully realized, but I see the beginnings of it. Now he's going to do something super strange. And it's, it's funny because in my past studying this particular book, this little passage that I'm about to read, I have not always connected rightly to what I just read you sort of separate this one out because it seems that Paul here is trying to make a point about those who are our rivals, you know, in the workplace and stuff, those who, who, who do things out of wrong motives. And I've always read this next passage, like what Paul's trying to help us understand is when you encounter people with wrong motives, then, you know, here's how you handle it. But what Paul's really just doing here, if you look at it in the context, is he's just expanding further into the great fruit of his imprisonment as far as gospel expansion goes even, wait for it now, in spaces that the space itself doesn't even seem like an advancement of the gospel. Watch. You're like, what, do you, what did you just say? Go podcast it seven times and it'll start making some sense because my words can be very confusing at times. But when I read this, I think you'll understand. Watch. So Paul says then, you know, they're speaking the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, rivalry but others from goodwill. So now what Paul's doing is like, not only are those who know Jesus emboldened to preach the gospel, but I'm just going to be honest with you, Philippians, you've heard, haven't you? Because do you see how a letter is speaking to probably the questions that kind of came up between the lines in the conversation? I bet somewhere they were like, Paul, are you not super frustrated by, you know, um, uh, that, that dude over there that like was doing nothing. And now that you're in prison, he's run off to Spain and he's starting a church. And he's like, Paul didn't do it. I've got a big church now and I can do it. So there was this, there must've been the sense that there are some that are seeing Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to uh, advance themselves by doing ministry, right? 
So Paul's like, look, I just want to say to you guys, I know you guys are going to push back a bit. Well, what about all those that are using this opportunity to advance themselves? And they're not preaching the gospel out of good motive. They're preaching the gospel out of wrong motive. Look, look what Paul's going to do with this. It's so crazy. The latter, those are the ones that preach from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So they're not trying to advance themselves. They're trying to advance the gospel because they're emboldened, because they know I'm here because of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? So Paul's asking the question, when the cost of me stepping out in faith and living and speaking my faith in a culture that opposes it or in a relationship that opposes it, and then I pay a price for that. And then out of that price, certainly some non-believers, if they watch how I respond, will be moved to wonder about the gospel. And believers, as they watch me respond in faith, will be moved to be emboldened. But there's more fruit. There are those who will actually use my predicament to advance themselves by using that space to preach the gospel and build their own little kingdoms. Now, before I say what I'm about to say, I want to say one thing. This is a parenthesis, so take a breath with me here for a second. One thing you need to be very clear on in this passage is that Paul is making the assumption by the language he's using that the content of the gospel being preached is still the right gospel. Paul is very clear that when someone is preaching a false gospel, that there, it doesn't matter if their motives are good or bad, we reject a false gospel, right? Paul's not going to say, I'm just so thrilled a false gospel's being preached, even though it's not like my gospel. No, what he's saying here is they are proclaiming Christ. They are proclaiming the right gospel. It's just their reason for proclaiming it is off. And Paul says, look at this now. If my imprisonment, watch this now, if my imprisonment causes somebody who was not going to preach the gospel because they were threatened by my gifting, my leadership, my ministry. And because I'm now in prison, they're like, sweet, I can take my opportunity and go preach the gospel and plant a church in a city that Paul was going to do it so that I could have the church. And they preach the gospel there and a church is born and Jesus is glorified. What does Paul say? That's actually fruit of my imprisonment. Do you see what he just did? That's actually fruit of my imprisonment. It's a way Paul is saying Spain will be handled by God. Spain will be handled by God. And my imprisonment will actually play a part in Spain coming to know Jesus and anywhere else for that matter. He wasn't specifically talking about Spain, but he's like, folks, don't you understand? While I'm stuck in prison, God, through my suffering, is causing non-believers to wonder about the gospel because of the way I'm responding to my suffering. It's causing believers to be boldened because of the way I'm responding to my suffering. So my suffering becomes my ministry. Or rather, let me rephrase more accurately, my response to my suffering becomes my new ministry that is having great advancement for the gospel and even those misusing my suffering for their own uh, purposes but preaching the gospel is another way that God is moving the gospel. What? And so he's like, so I know from a human perspective, I seem stuck and God's glory seems thwarted and the expansion of his kingdom seems 
like his strategy is slightly off. But when we feel stuck outside of the dreams we had, the plans we had, the way we thought it would go, and we're wondering why God's power isn't setting us free from the circumstances in which we find ourselves so we can go glorify him, Paul is saying often what we're missing is not that God has abandoned us and left us stuck, but we're missing what God is doing right here because we only think about how the gospel can be expanded in the dreams we had. We see this a lot. We experience this a lot. I mean, how many of us have not prayed when we see somebody struggling with physical suffering, they're sick and they're dying, and we say things like, God, if you would just heal this person and bring them back, then all these doctors would come to Jesus because they would see them like, well, so you, the way you're going to be glorified is by doing something what? Big. But if you let this person die, well, that's ordinary, and there'll be no like, big, and then you won't be like, glorified, because what do we say about that? Glory to God, they died like all the other humans do. So let's just be honest for a second. Like, you, you feel it, don't you? If God does big things, then big glory happens, and big ministry happens, and big lots of people come to Jesus, and then, yeah. And so we all, in some way, live in this space. We all have had or have dreams of how God is going to use us, and then we end up kind of stuck in some other form and we're like, this doesn't feel like much use. I mean, I have a direct experience of that. And, and it's, it's such a profound experience. So we live in a culture that honors big things, big buildings, big bank accounts, big voices, big influence, big talent, big gifting, big everything. And so, therefore, the advancement of things, including God's kingdom, is when big things happen. So I live in a home where... Um, I am married to a wife that's like 4,000 times more brilliant than I am. Um, she has a sharp mind. Uh, when she was advancing in her college years, she had big dreams about big things. And then God got a hold of her heart, and she moved those dreams to ministry dreams. And we dreamed of engaging in ministry together to see God do big things, right? And you feel all these callings. And then we had these things called children. So they're like, they're like small humans. And, and they show up sometimes through biological birth and sometimes through adoption processes. They show up in your home and then you have to engage in them and they seem to distract from big things, right? And so in our journey with God, um, we decided together that engaging in the opportunity to engage at home in significant uh, presence for Brooke was a thing we had both opportunity for and felt called to. And so Brooke has spent the last two decades, primarily wrestling in our home space to bring her gifting to, be, to bear there, to make for the best family we could have. Well, guess what I've gotten to do? I've gotten during those two decades to be in places like this, to see small churches become bigger ones, small businesses become bigger ones. And Brooke has participated in that, but in the shadows. And so sometimes... You sit one day, and I know none of you have ever felt this way, where you've looked at the dreams you had 25 years ago and they were never realized, and you're like, I just did nothing. God used other humans in profound and expansive ways, and I did nothing. And Paul comes to us. 
by the Spirit and says, the problem isn't that you did lots or did little. The problem is that you see wrongly. Both Renault is wrong and Brooke is wrong. I didn't do big things just because things got big. <laughs> That's just America that told me that, not Jesus. And Brooke didn't do small things because they didn't feel big. And what Paul is saying is that going to Spain and planting 500 churches and writing 500 more letters that could have been included in Scripture for 500 more glorious quotes for posters feels bigger to us, but it's not bigger than the imperial guard hearing about me, people being emboldened, and other people preaching the gospel even out of selfish motive. God will take care of Spain. I get to stand where I am in whatever prison I feel stuck in and say, maybe I'm not stuck. Maybe I'm just not looking at what God is expanding through me because there's no human that God expands more through than any other human. Let me say that again. There's no human that God expands more through than other humans. We just have the wrong measuring stick. So what a freedom it is to come and say, your ministry is that whatever you find yourself in, whatever prison you feel you're in, whatever dreams you feel didn't come to fruition, stop waiting for some external bigness to make you significant and start paying attention to the beautiful significance in which you currently stand in whatever small space according to this world you find yourself. Because God is up to big things in small spaces just as much as he is big things in big spaces. Because God is always up to big things whether we are in small spaces or big ones. And so God says, I mean Paul says through God, once you realize that the prison you're in is actually as effective in gospel expansion when you respond to it out of faith as being a traveler through Spain, then you can begin to see the grand opportunity before you. That whatever suffering you encounter because you've chosen to live by faith, when you live that out, the world that watches that are unbelievers are brought to grand curiosity because they can't fathom what you're up to. And the world of believers are brought to grand boldness, which expands the gospel. Let me use an example. So I have two that are profound to me. One is grander in its collective, and one is smaller in its singularity, the grander one. We are a church that takes very seriously the engagement with children that are in hard spaces, vulnerable children. That is the orphan crisis, the foster care system, children that are either the recipients of poverty and therefore struggle a great deal, or the recipients of loss of their parents because of many things, orphaned, we engage deeply in that world. And when we began to engage in that world, we found that that world is an extremely pricey world to engage in because the children you're engaging with come from hard places, and you are a flawed human that is not ready to engage with humans that come from hard places. So as soon as you engage with them, you make life hard for them. and <laughs> They make life hard for you. And then your biological children started making life hard for you the second they were born. And you started making life hard for them the second you were their parent. Because that's the collision of our humanity and our hard spaces. And so we're engaged in this grand wrestle. And as we have stepped into that, 
If you look at it on a microcosm, you say, for example, my wife and I look at our home and we look at the 10 years that we've had the privilege of being a whole family, right, with all eight of my kids, and you look at how much damage we have all affected on each other, you're kind of discouraged. You're just kind of like, we probably shouldn't Oh my gosh, we killed them all. I mean, my children are going to need therapy for a long time because of Brooke and I. And we are in therapy because of them. And so it works out really well, right? But when you look at it in terms of this, our struggle, and I, when I say our, my collective family, all my kids and their freedom to give me the freedom to share the hard things with you because it's their story too, and the freedom that we've had here, affected then the boldness for others to step into the story. And then as those others did, their stories that in a microcosm were just as sometimes discouraging became the spaces where suffering was actually engaged with faith and community and it stirred others up to boldness. And now we're an entire church that in our different ways engage in a massive worldwide crisis much more effectively while still in any microcosm, there's a lot of suffering. There was a young lady that actually is a part of that whole story because she came into her family because of that whole story and was adopted. And her name was Bella. And Bella engaged in a story where from the second we met her, she was suffering because she had giant medical challenges. And her suffering physically and therefore emotionally, because when you are a human in constant pain and death is your inevitability literally every month, you don't know if you're going to make it another month. And that was Bella's story. You have to deal with extraordinary suffering. And to watch little Bella from the time she was three when we met her, all the way to the time when she was ten and a half and left this planet to go be with Jesus, watching her wrestle and her struggle through her desire to connect by faith to Jesus and eternity and her desire to be right here with her family and with her friends was a weighty thing to watch. But watching Bella choose over and over again by the Spirit's power to move from fear to faith, from fear to faith, from fear to faith, from fear to faith, has forever changed many of us. The doctors and nurses that are not believers still can't fathom what they watched. And the believers that watch still are emboldened daily. I, I have shirts, you know, every year a new Bella shirt comes out that she was called Bella the Brave. And the latest shirt that came out this year, the quote on the back, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but it, it, this is what it is. Um, I, I, I wish being brave was easy, but I'm still going to be brave. So when I uh, have to enter hard spaces now, like I know my day is going to require things of me that I'm frankly just too scared to do, those are the days that I put the Bella shirt on. Because I'm like, if she could do it, I can do it. Do you see how this works? When one follower of Jesus responds to suffering with faith and wrestles through fear day in and day out, it inspires other believers to respond by faith to their circumstances. And the gospel advances. So I don't know what your prison is. Is it a dream that you thought was going to be yours that you now realize probably won't? Is it a weightiness of circumstance, disease, and struggle that you're suffering in that you just want God to take away and you're tired that he hasn't? Is it a loss of job or space that you're like, God, if you just gave me that, then I would be able to do X, Y, and Z and expand your kingdom. But now look at me. I'm broke. 
I'm stuck and I'm doing nothing. And I don't know what your Spain is, what you're like, if only, then I could. If only God would, then I would. And then God would, and then it will be big. We all have a Spain and we all have a prison. And what Paul is giving us as a gift by the Spirit is to say, you're measuring wrongly. Spain is not as big as you thought. The prison is not as wasteful as you thought. Where is God's kingdom expanding? In Spain. And where else? In prison. And wherever you find yourself, there he is using you and your story for the expansion of his kingdom. And together, we are the body of Christ seeing the kingdom of God expanded. And boy, what a privilege that my little story might, in its suffering, inspire non-believers to be curious about the gospel and inspire believers to be bolder than ever. And so the kingdom advances, not just through them, but through me because of him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are consistently and constantly bringing us truth that defies our culture's measuring stick. God, we live on a planet that measures things by their felt size and impact. And you, you measure things very differently. You measure things in equality. You make us all equal and say you all are created and I use you even when I shouldn't to participate in redemption so that you can experience the joy of being a participant. But I do the work. So whether your work feels small or feels big, it's still my big work. So God, help us today as a people in a culture that is going to demand from us to shift our faith for us to be received well more and more and give us the courage to begin the process of saying, if standing on our faith in the way we behave and love and the truth on which we stand will cost us greatly, then so be it. Because in that cost, you will make yourself famous, strong and beautiful. And if our story doesn't have much cost and we get to go to Spain and plant churches, then may we rejoice in that. But God, would you help us to rejoice in this, that whether I feel stuck or whether I'm in the midst of my own version of big, that the great work you are doing is no bigger or smaller in e either of those environments. So help those of us that are in a season where we think more of what we get to do than we ought to remember that our work is not bigger than anyone else's. And for those of us in seasons where we feel like we've spent decades missing out on the work we could have done, that you would whisper to us and say, I want you to know, brother or sister, that my circumstances, yours, are advancing the gospel in ways bigger than you could have ever imagined. Help us, God, to be content in the beauty of just being your kid, participating in your story. We love you, Jesus. Amen.